Welcome to the Kindling's Muse podcast, an intelligent, imaginative, hospitable exploration of ideas that matter in contemporary life. And now, here's your host, Dick Staub. Well, welcome everybody to the Kindling's Muse at Earl Palmer Ministries. Uh, this event is taped for live podcast in front of a live audience at Kane Hall on the campus of the University of Washington. Go Huskies. Uh, each month, Reverend Earl Palmer selects a book every thinking person ought to read. Begins with some opening comments, followed by a conversation with me, and then we open it up for questions and comments from our audience. Tonight, our subject is Great Speeches by Abraham Lincoln. And the two in particular that we're going to be looking at are the Gettysburg Address and the Second Inaugural. A couple of books that we would recommend um, that Earl has brought with him. Gary Willis's book, Lincoln at Gettysburg, which is an amazing uh, story of the Gettysburg Address. And then Ronald White, who is a friend of Earl's, uh, Lincoln's Greatest Speech, the Second Inaugural. These are two amazing books that you might want to uh, consider reading if you haven't already. So here to give us an overview of this amazing subject is Earl Palmer. Will you join me in welcoming you. And uh, for all of you here in the, in the room today, we have the two speeches uh, printed out for you so that you can uh, see the, the two speeches we're looking at. Uh, if you go to the Lincoln Memorial in Washington, D.C., uh, you'll see uh, the great statue of, of Abraham Lincoln uh, seated. And on one wall is the Gettysburg Address carved in marble. And on the other wall, the uh, second inaugural address carved in marble. In other words, those two speeches uh, became, uh, in that memorial, a gift to the whole world. Uh, two uh, amazing speeches uh, by Abraham Lincoln, the President of the United States. The first speech, a uh, year and a half before the second speech, but the first speech was given in November 19th, 18, uh, 1850, uh, 1853, and uh, it was at Gettysburg. Gettysburg had just gone through a battle. The great battle of Gettysburg had been one of the turning points of the Civil War, but the Civil War is going to last for almost uh, two years more. It's a four-year war. But uh, at, Getty, at Gettysburg, after that battle, uh, Robert E. Lee had been driven to the, actually to the swamps of the Potomac River, and then General George Meade, commander of the Union forces, he missed the chance to capture Lee's uh, troops. And though the, the Union army had defeated Lee at that point, but they didn't capture them. Instead, he let them uh, go, and... Uh, Lee with his troops and wounded and, and as many of his dead that he could bring, they left and went across the Potomac River uh, to fight another day. This caused tremendous controversy in the North uh, and General uh, Meade actually uh, uh, resigned and, uh, and gave his resignation as General of the uh, Union Army, but Lincoln refused to accept it. He, and as a matter of fact, Robert E. Lee offered his resignation to Jefferson Davis, uh, the head of the rebel forces, and he did not uh, accept the resignation. So these two failed generals uh, met at the Battle of Gettysburg. That was the summer of, uh, eight, of 1863. The, the Union the, decided to have a major, uh, not a celebration, but a major memorial event. Uh, to honor the, the dead uh, of the Union's uh, forces. 
at Gettysburg. And that was the November 19th uh, date that was set in 1863. And the, the men w were buried by units and by states. And so that you, it was, they were, it was, it was to be a, 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 a memorial to honor all of these Union forces and the states they came from, the units they came from. Uh, it, it, and that was set for November, uh, the November 19th. They barely were able to get all the bodies buried. That was how horrendous was that battle uh, by the end of summer and the fall. But they did finally uh, get it enough that they could have this memorial celebration or memorial uh, event. Uh, the great book on that event is, in my opinion, this wonderful book by uh, Gary Wills called Lincoln at Gettysburg. He got the Pulitzer Prize for this book. It's really, uh, I love Gary Wills anyway. He's just a tremendous writer, and uh, he, you, he captures the, the event so marvelously uh, on that day. Uh, Lincoln was invited as the president and commander-in-chief to give a few appropriate remarks. That's exactly the way they featured it in the invitation. A few appropriate remarks. And the main speech was, be, was to be given and was given by Edward Everett. Edward Everett had been Secretary of State and he was the president of Harvard University. His dear friend was Ralph Waldo Emerson. It was, he was in that great transcendentalist movement and he was the president of Harvard and probably the most famous orator in the United States. And to, to show you how, uh, how polished he was, he wrote a two and a half hour address. And when he got up to, uh, to the table to put it, they were all neatly stacked, the entire address there for everybody to see. But he never once looked at it. He had it totally committed to memory. He was uh, a brilliant orator. And he uh, had a sweet voice. He had a, uh, a lyrical voice and was, uh, all, was a, a brilliant man and gave the address. So that was the address on that day. There was a pastor there named Stockton who gave a 14-minute prayer. So that was a, a very significant prayer. Uh, a little, little too long for a dinner, of course. It'd be too long if you're going to have, uh, you're having thanks before a meal. Don't ever go 14 minutes. But he did go 14 minutes. And the benediction at the end went about eight minutes. They, the Marine Band played, uh, a choir sang. Uh, then Edward Everett spoke for two plus hours. And Abraham Lincoln was there on the stage listening to that uh, speech. And uh, uh, had been, by the way, he had been uh, in politeness. Edward Everett had given him a copy of the speech, a galley copy of the speech before. So he knew it was going to be said. But he then uh, was privileged to be there and to hear it. And then uh, following that, he stood up to speak. Following his speech, uh, which was a, a, a speech of 272 words. Everybody is very interested in the fact that it was 272 words. It lasted about three minutes long. Uh, it was interrupted with applause five times by the people. Lincoln is a different man than Everett. Everett was, uh, had a melodious and lyrical voice. Lincoln had a high tenor voice. 
and, it, and because of his Kentucky accent, was not particularly appreciated. His voice was not appreciated in the, in the Washington, D era, uh, Washington area and uh, where the more southern voice would be more uh, respected and liked than the, the more western voice of Abraham Lincoln. But it was high, it was a tenor voice. And when he spoke, he spoke slowly. This was the, the mark of Abraham Lincoln's speech. He spoke slowly, and he spoke clearly, and, and with great projection of his voice. There were more than, there were almost 20,000 people there, and no PA systems, as you know, but yet people could all hear his speech. They could hear Everett, Everett, Everett too, though his speech would not be as, uh, you know, as uh, clear in the far reaches of that great crowd. But Lincoln's voice could be heard in the far reaches of the crowd because he had this high, tenor, slow, clear voice. And, uh, uh, and so he gave his speech. By the way, it's interesting, the, the speech was, uh, was so short, the three minutes, that the official photographer, this has uh, always been uh, something that everybody is, is amused at, the official photographer was still putting up his equipment and getting it adjusted, uh, and the speech was over. So there is no official photograph of Abraham Lincoln giving the Gettysburg Address. Uh, now, at the inaugural, there is an official, photogra uh, official photograph of Abraham Lincoln in his longer speech in the inauguration a year and a half later. But uh, what happened in the speech, and why is it so significant? Why is it on the Lincoln Memorial? Why is it treasured uh, down, through the, uh, down through the years, not only in the United States, but all over the world? Uh, he did an amazing thing in that very short speech. First, he dedicated the cemetery uh, and played that role that he was supposed to play. It was to be a dedication, dedication remarks, uh, to honor the dead who've fallen. Uh, these Union soldiers who were buried in various, uh, all the states of the Union, they were buried there that, in that. Now the, the Southern uh, Confederate soldiers, there were some of those warriors that were also buried, but they were, they were buried in mass graves with just dirt over them. They, they were not buried properly because there wasn't time. Lee got as many of his men out, as many out, but they, the others, they just simply were, were laid down and dirt was, was placed over them. And then, then grass came over that, but they, they were not, it, it was the, the, the soldiers of the North that were put in their graves by their units and by their states. And so he did dedicate, uh, he dedicated the, the cemetery in memory of these, of these soldiers. And, but he does something remarkable in the way he does it. In the first, in the very beginning of his speech, he boldly takes on a vision statement uh, of our republic, in the founding of our republic from the Declaration of Independence. Four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. Now, what he's doing is he's putting his imprint on the vision of the vision of the, of the, the early uh, creators of this republic. But 
in the Constitution that followed that Declaration of Independence, all men created equal, but uh, American slavery was still an institution. It was an institution at that time. It, the British, of course, made it illegal in the beginning of the 19th century, 1803, but not in the United States. Not until first Abraham Lincoln, as commander-in-chief, issued the Emancipation Proclamation. And then uh, the amendments to the Constitution ensured that uh, uh, all men are created equal. That, so this is a vision statement that Abraham Lincoln gives before the fact. Uh, and, and he gets criticized by some people for that, that, that he took the Constitution, or rather he took the Declaration of Independence and put his own imprint upon it. He is, in a sense, saying this is what the vision really was, though it was not acted out in the early days of our constitutional life together. We put up with uh, an institution in a great part of our, in a great part of our land, uh, which was the American slavery. We put up with it. Uh, we, uh, we made it an important part of our economy, especially in the southern part of our, of our nation. So in the, in the Gettysburg Address, though, he dares to do that. He dares to, to carve out for us a vision. And then, uh, then he says this civil war is testing whether that nation or any nation so conceived and so dedicated he shows here that this civil war is about ending that m bad mark on our, on our constitutional life, which had not, uh, up until that time, had not made slavery crime, had made, but had made slavery permissible. It was an e economic right in the South, one of the reasons for the Civil War. And so notice what he's doing. He's now recasting the real impact of what this war and what this battle is all about. He is saying, we are a nation so conceived, so dedicated, that's the vision he said is really there, even though we were not living up to it at that early time. But can it long endure? That's the big question. Could it endure? And we're met on a great battlefield of that war, and we've come to dedicate a portion of that field as a final resting place for those who gave their lives the nation might live, that, that, that this vision could endure. And it is therefore fitting and proper that we should do this. But he doesn't leave it there. He moves on. He says, we cannot hallow this ground. The brave men living and dead who struggled here and consecrated it far above our poor power to add or to detract. And then an interesting line. The world will little note nor long remember what we say here, but it can never forget what they did here. And, and now he switches and says, we dedicated this land, uh, this cemetery, in memory of those who gave their full measure of devotion, their life. Now there's another dedication that has to take place. And so he calls this young nation into another dedication. So listen to that. And that's what becomes so unforgettable in the, in the Gettysburg Address. We can never forget what they did. But now it is for the living rather to be dedicated here to the unfinished work which they who fought here have thus far so nobly advanced. He is now saying this civil war is about slavery. And it's about the ending of that terrible uh, scourge. Now that's why this speech is 
it can't be separated from the next speech, the second inaugural address, where he'll make that luminously clear. But right now, he's giving you the vision of it. He says, they nobly fought for a vision. It is rather for us to be here dedicated to the great task remaining before us, that from these honored dead we take increased devotion to that cause for which they gave their last full measure of devotion. And now it's us he's talking about, that we from these honored dead we take increased devotion to that cause for which they gave the last full measure of devotion. And we here highly resolve that these dead shall not have died in vain. He now claims that these warriors who fought uh, to keep the Union, who fought to uh, uh, not, uh, and not to give in to, uh, to the, uh, the, the dangerous uh, entrapment of slavery that had, uh, had uh, taken uh, such a power, powerful hold in our country up to that time. We here highly resolve that these dead shall not have died in vain, and that this nation, under God, shall have a new birth of freedom, a new kind of freedom. And that that government, and now he makes it very clear that he's talking about the whole body politic of this society. And that that nation of the people, by the people, for the people, shall not perish from this earth. And that's the speech. Uh, 272 words, dedicating the ground in honor of those who died and dedicating the vision that is, needs to be now fulfilled. The vision needs to be fulfilled. And we now must play that role of fulfilling that vision. So, of course, this speech was given in the middle of the Civil War. The war is still underway. And a year and a half later, and so now I want to combine that speech, that amazing short speech, 272 words, uh, that uh, he gave at Gettysburg with the second speech that he gave an, a year and a half later. Okay, now what's happened in the meantime? A year and a half later, uh, in April, or in March uh, 9th of 2000. I mean, of uh, 1,865, a year and a half later exactly, uh, just actually nine days before Abraham Lincoln will be assassinated, he gives his second inaugural address. And that is his vision for this country and how we can now fulfill uh, the initial promise of, of, by, and for the people a new birth of freedom how that can be uh, realized. That's why these two rightly belong in the, in the Lincoln Memorial. Okay, what's happened in this, in, uh, in now this uh, speech one and a half years later? Uh, it's, a one, it's one month before the final defeat of the Civil War. And that defeat will take place uh, one month later uh, when Robert E. Lee will surrender to Ulysses S. Grant. And think of that Civil War. The lives that were taken in the Civil War, both North and South, were 623,000 lives. And that's the, they're really only counting soldiers. They're not counting civilians who are just 
uh, caught up also in those in that loss. And uh, you compare that to World War One, in which we lost 117,000 soldiers, uh, warriors uh, in World War One, and in World War Two, 405,000 American soldiers lost in World War Two. But in the Civil War, 623,000 uh, young men and uh, and some women too, who were soldiers, that were counted in the in that terrifying number. So in uh, in March 4th, 1865, Lincoln stands up uh, to give the Gettysburg Address. Now let me tell you something interesting about it. Uh, in the first, in, in his first inaugural inaugural address, he basically gives an address urging the South, urging the Southern part, not to press their their claims uh, against uh, uh, the uh, abolitionist view of the of the North, and and gives a long address in in the first inaugural. Very, uh, uh, it's a it's a, a good address, but it's not a great address because uh, he, he he doesn't have enough leverage to work uh, or to make make the claim. He's just a president at the beginning of, of a war that's breaking out, and it does break out right away. And now in the second inaugural address, he will have to do some review. And so in the opening of the second inaugural address, he will review the, uh, uh, what their goal was at the first inaugural address. And he spends some time, that you can see that in the first paragraph, saying that uh, we tried to prevent the possibility of war. And then in the second paragraph, he says, in that uh, occasion, uh, our, all thoughts were uh, anxiously directed to, uh, 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 to, uh, directed to an impending civil war. All dreaded it. All sought to avert it. Both southern and northern senators and representatives and people in the, in the, in the government, they sought to avoid, avoid it. And, but he says, while the inaugural, inaugural address was being delivered, where well, we're trying to avert that, he said, uh, he says, actually, secret insurgent agents were in this city seeking to destroy it without war, to get their way, to win their way on those economic issues concerning the possession of slavery and the continuation of slavery in the South. And it was an economic, a tremendous economic, uh, economic importance uh, for the agriculture of the South, they felt, and therefore they were trying uh, to undermine the attempt to, to uh, do away with that, and then, and, but instead they didn't succeed. So then he steps back and says in the third, in the third paragraph, one-eighth of the whole population were colored slaves, not distributed generally over the Union, but localized in the southern part of it. Now he just he decides to name what was actually there. These slaves, and now he speaks, he doesn't do this in the Gettysburg Address, he does not mention slavery, he doesn't mention uh, uh, that terrible tragedy. He just, uh, he just gives a dream for how we've got to now work toward having a, a, a new birth of freedom. But now in the second inaugural, he's being very blunt. These slaves constituted a peculiar and powerful interest. 
And he's talking about the economic interest of slavery in the South. They felt that they absolutely had to have it in order to maintain the agricultural life of the South. And all knew that this interest was somehow the cause of the war. Now he's bluntly saying that's the reason for this four-year war. Uh, while the government claimed no right to do more, and then he actually says something rather odd. He says the, the government in the North was willing to do all kinds of compromises to hold on to the Union and, uh, and try to figure out accommodations to keep from going to war, but he said it didn't work. Uh, neither party expected the war nor the magnitude or the duration uh, with which it all already attained. Neither anticipated the cause of that conflict might uh, cease or that even before the conflict itself should cease. Each looked for an easier triumph and as a result, less fundamental and less astounding. In other words, we, he admits that the North and the South were trying to find some accommodations and, and so in a way he apologizes for that part of his first inaugural address where he was trying to figure out a way to keep the Union together and accommodate the economic needs of the South and accommodate slavery somehow, but, but constrain it and, and, re, and restrain its expanse. And that's what they tried to do. But he said uh, that, that was not working. Each looked for an easier triumph the result, and a result that would be less fundamental and less astounding. Both read the same Bible. Now it's interesting. From now on in the speech, he's going to be very religious. He's going to talk about great universal truths. And both read the same Bible. They pray to the same God. And each invokes his aid against the other. And then comes his reflection. It may seem a, it may seem strange that any men should dare to ask a just God's assistance. He's now saying that God has justice that is attached to God. That you could ask for a just God's assistance in wringing their bread from the sweat of other men's faces. Here he quotes the uh, early Deuteronomy and, and, and Genesis uh, descriptions of man who lives by the sweat of his brow. But he says, now we're going to make our money by someone else's sweat. And he said, how, he said, it seems strange that, that these southern folks could claim that and suppose uh, that, that, uh, uh, that we would be able to ask God's help so that we could wring their, our bread from their sweat of other men's faces. But let us, and then he steps back, and quotes uh, Jesus Christ from the Sermon on the Mount. But let us judge not that we be not judged. He is saying we're not perfect in the north and they weren't perfect in the south in the way we tried to claim God's uh, help for us. So he said, let us not judge lest we be judged. The prayers of both could not be answered. That of neither has been fully, uh, or, and that of neither has been fully answered. The Almighty has his own purposes. And he now, Lincoln decides to become a theologian here and a biblical theologian. God has his own purposes. And then he quotes Jesus Christ from Matthew 17. Woe unto the world because of offenses, for it must needs be that if 
offenses come, but woe to the man to whom offense comes. If we shall suppose that American slavery is one of those offenses, and now that's what Abraham Lincoln is doing in this speech. If we suppose that our American slavery is one of those offenses which in the providence of God must needs come, in other words, God allowed it, he allowed slavery uh, because God does not take away our freedom. We had the freedom to have slavery. And so uh, in God's providence, but now having continued through his appointed time, he now wills to remove. And that he gives to both North and South this terrible war as the woe due to those by whom the offense came. Shall we discern therein any departure from these divine attributes, which, uh, which uh, the believers in a living God always ascribe to him? And then he says, we, we do pray with hope. Fondly do we hope, fervently do we pray that this mighty scourge of war may speedily pass away. Yet if God wills, Here's some of the most powerful lines in the second inaugural address. Yet if God wills that it continue until all the wealth piled by the bondsman's 250 years of unrequited toil, slavery lasted 250 years, shall be sunk, and until every drop of blood drawn with the lash shall be paid by another drawn with the sword. As was said 3,000 years ago, and by the way, that is actually uh, uh, quoting the psalm, Psalm 119, which is 3,000 years ago. Uh, our Lord would be 2,000 years ago, but 3,000 years ago would be a psalm. And now he quotes uh, Psalm 119. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. He then, in, that, in this second great third great paragraph, he boldly decides to say that uh, there's a judgment that has come upon our country. A judgment, uh, and he said, uh, we, bear, uh, we bear guilt, and the South bears guilt, the North bears guilt, but a judgment has come, though he says, I cannot understand how the South could ever assume that God, we could pray that God would bless uh, our getting our profit from somebody else's sweat. And then that 250 years of unrequited toil, the toil of people held in bondage, how we can possibly do that. And then, uh, and then he quotes the Psalm 119, that the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. It becomes a judgment text, but, this, but his uh, second inaugural address is not over. He then comes to what is the most moving part of the address. With malice toward none, with charity for all, he takes the two great words, malice, which would be hate and vengeance and punishment, and then charity, which is the great word for love. With malice toward none, with charity, with love for all, with firmness in the right, as God gives us the right, to see the right, let us strive on to finish the work we're in. And now he, this picks up the theme from the Gettysburg Address. Let us now uh, finish the work we're in. 
to bind up the nation's wounds, to care for him who, have, who shall have borne the battle, and for his widow and his orphan. And he isn't drawing a distinction between north or south, but those who bore the battle, and they were widows on both sides, and orphans on both sides. So he says, to care for him who shall have borne the battle, and for his widow and his orphan, to do all that may achieve and cherish a just and a lasting peace uh, among ourselves and with all nations. That was his speech. By the way, when the first inauguration was given, the American Capitol building was under construction. And the beginning of the dome was beginning to be made in iron. Iron, great iron uh, rods formed the dome of what would become the Capitol. And uh, then in, uh, now in January of, 19, of, of 18, uh, 18, uh, 50, uh, 1855, in January of that, the uh, The, the, the Congress had commissioned an American sculptor to sculpt something that would be put on top of the Capitol uh, dome that was built. And in the December, just before Lincoln's inauguration, which was March of 1885, but in 1864 in, January, in December, they had completed the steel work that would become the U.S. dome. And the sculptor was put on the top of it. And it, the sculptor was called uh, Lady of Freedom. And it was uh, done by an American, uh, an American artist had created it named Thomas Crawford, had, had created this sculpture. And he put a woman uh, on the top, a woman warrior. And the woman warrior has a sword in one hand. This is on top of the US Capitol today a sword in one hand to represent power, and on the other hand, a garland of flowers to represent glory. But the most moving part of the statue is that Thomas Crawford put on top of the uh, warrior a, uh, a helmet, uh, a, a cover, a cover over her head. It was also made of lead and, and copper, and that is on top of her head. And that symbol is a symbol from ancient Greece that was the symbol of a slave set free. The setting free of a slave is represented by a hood, a, a, a cover, put a cap, put over the, the warrior. And so that was put on the top of the capital, and that had statue, uh, sculpture, had just been completed in the December before Abraham Lincoln gave his inaugural address, his second inaugural address. So that looked down on, uh, on this speech in which Abraham Lincoln made it clear that the purpose of this dreadful four-year war was to end a terrible injustice, an injustice for which we have been punished. We've been punished by war, and uh, the, uh, the blood from the lash has been matched now with the blood from the sword. 
and all these lives have been lost. And it was the, and God in his providence allowed it. And because of justice, it's sort of, there is a universal code of justice and that code cannot be broken. And that is sort of symbolized, but in hope, it was symbolized by that, that great emblem on top of the Capitol. Strength, glory, and there is glory, but then the woman warrior is wearing a cap, which is the symbol of a slave set free. And by the way, that's very biblical. When the Ten Commandments is introduced to us in the book of Deuteronomy, it starts out with, Hear, O Israel, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of slavery in the land of Egypt and set you free. I did that. So that grace of being set free is at the beginning of the Ten Commandments. And in a way, you wonder if Abraham Lincoln is so focused on the law being fulfilled. This, the judgment part, and then now, the grace part. Hmm. That's the speech. Wow. We'll be back with more of Earl Palmer right after this. Don't go away. Stop back with you. We have a very unruly group tonight, inspired by the Civil War. A lot of activity out here in the audience, and we are really, really glad you're all here. This is the time when I get to take a minute, and um, if we can have everybody kind of uh, take your seats again now, uh, this is the time where Earl and I are going to talk for a minute, and then we're going to get to your questions, and at the next break, be sure to get one of these cards and uh, write your question out. I was very interested in hearing what you had to say about this speech from the standpoint of effective communication today. And I'm very, very interested in, in uh, what you said, which is certainly the case in the Gettysburg Address, that, that Lincoln built a shared vision, a commitment to unity, where in fact some people said it didn't exist in the Constitution, and other people said it didn't exist at that time in the Civil War. Uh, as a matter of fact, the Chicago Tribune said that uh, what happened at the Gettysburg Address was a giant s swindle. Uh, Lincoln betrayed the instrument he was on oath to defend, traducing the men who died for the letter of that fundamental law to uphold the Constitution and the union created by it. How dare he then stand on their graves, misstate the cause for which they died, and libel the statesmen who founded the government? You see, the media was kind of doing the same thing back then that they do today. <laughs> but I'm interested because when you read Gary Will's book, he says that in fact what happened that day with those 20,000 people is that the, the audience that day heard the speech and did get a vision for the shared vision. So the critics were, were certainly stating a case that was being made by some, but that over time, it was one of the unifying uh, developments in the, in, the, uh, in the State of the Union. How, how, did, how do you view that, uh, the controversy over what he actually said there, 
and the success that he had in achieving a, a new shared vision. Yeah, well, uh, th- and I, I like the way Gary Wills does it too in uh, in in making that point that uh, what what he does is uh, he shares what was the vision uh, that he, he it, it, what he felt was the the noble part of the vision. Yeah, and. Uh, then when the Constitution had to do all of the negotiating in the Constitution to get uh, the southern states to agree to the Constitution, they had to put in, uh, you have to compromise the best deal you can get. Mm-hmm. And so you get, uh, you, you, you have some uh, hardliners like Alexander Hamilton wanted from the very beginning in the Constitution to eradicate slavery. and. They, Washington was willing to go along with that because Washington had already released in his will all his slaves. Uh, so was John Adams, but not Jefferson, and uh, who instantly is the one who first penned uh, all men are created equal. Right. But yet Jefferson had many slaves, and that was a part of his Virginia culture and the Virginia plantation idea. And, and so they had to get the best deal they could get and in order to get the southern... Uh, you know, states to join in with it. And so compromises are made. And that's why I think Lincoln apologizes a little bit for his first inaugural, where he in the first inaugural was trying to see if we could have compromises to get something less fundamental. Uh, But when it didn't work, we realized that we have to go all the way and have to have this freedom, all men created equal, has got to be for everybody. It's got to be of the people, by the people, for the people, not for some people, some people, some people, but for the people. And so that was the vision that he was casting in Gettysburg. And now in second inaugural, he's saying, and we uh, now we're four years into the war and that is the vision. Hmm. And he makes it pretty clear uh, in that second part, the second paragraph, pretty clear that this this is a war. about slavery. Another thing you touched on is Lincoln as a theologian. And I was struck in reading Gary Will's book that of all of the uh, men who died at Gettysburg, they had very few possessions left, but the majority of possessions they had was a Bible, that many of these soldiers were carrying Bibles, and that's pretty much the only personal possession they had. And, And when you think about where we are as a nation today, and where they were at that time for Lincoln to do theology and, and have it become a, a point of lively conversation and even getting people to, to see an intellectual argument is pretty amazing. There was, after uh, Lincoln died, and I heard you talking, I think, to Paul, that uh, some people have heard this rumor that Lincoln jotted the, the Gettysburg Address down on a scrap of paper before he, just as he, as he arrived, and Gary Wills does an amazing job of showing how that was not the case, and Lincoln was very careful in all of his work. And one of the documents that was found after he died that, uh, that probably was on the drawing boards while he prepared the Gettysburg Address was called Meditations on the Divine Will. And he said, the will of God prevails. In great contests, each party claims to act in accordance with the will of God. Both may be, and one must be wrong. God cannot be for and against the same thing at the same time. 
in the present civil war, it is quite possible that God's purpose is somewhat different from the purpose of either party. And yet the human instrumentalities working just as they do are of the best adaptation to affect this. I mean, it's amazing that he's thinking this way, theologically, about, um, about the, the issues in the war. How yeah. widespread would that have been in the culture at that time? And, yeah. and, and how common or uncommon was it for a president to do that kind of theology in the public square? Well, you know, it's interesting. Uh, uh, Ronald White has a great, has, has a great section uh, where Frederick Douglass, the great uh, black uh, you know, civil rights advocate, uh, when uh, after the second inaugural address, he came to the White House and he was having a hard time getting into the White House because they were still, he, he was colored and they were not letting him in. This guard wouldn't. And he said, tell Mr. Lincoln that, that, that you won't let me in. And then Lincoln found him and, uh, and said, you know, I want to know what you think of my speech. And, uh, and so he asked Frederick Douglass, what did you think of my speech? And he, Frederick Douglass said, it was a, he called it, uh, it was a sacred effort. And then later he on, uh, later Frederick Douglass also said, it sounded more like a sermon than a state paper. Mm -hmm. So he saw that it was, there was a sermonic quality. It's very interesting. C.S. Lewis, when he wrote his broadcast talks, his first uh, broadcast talks that became Mere Christianity, uh, w was the title was given to him by BBC, uh, Right and Wrong as a Clue to the Meaning of the Universe. Mm -hmm. And that was given by BBC because they felt that we were in a struggle now about right and wrong in World War II. Right. And that's what Lincoln is. And so it's interesting that that's the way Lewis begins uh, mere Christianity, with the fact that there is a universal, there is a universal truth, mm -hmm. and all men uh, need to know it, and they always claim it for themselves. It's sort of like I love, uh, I, I don't want anybody to steal from me. I may not believe in that it's okay, it's okay for I for me to steal from somebody else, but it's not right for anybody to steal from me. I claim that right for me to have property for myself, and like, it's like I love humility for others. I love that great virtue for other people, but not for myself, but I still respect it, and there is that universal truth, and notice that's exactly the kind of theological uh, stance he took, takes with the Psalms, and with even the quotation from our Lord. It's our Lord who said, woe unto anyone who does uh, harm and injustice against God's justice. And, uh, and that, that's a great what, one of the woes that comes in Jesus' Thursday night discourse. And so he quotes that. But then he then jumps to Psalm 119 to give his sort of text. And that is uh, that justice text. Hmm. And that's universal. And he says that's a universal truth. And uh, that's why I think he has that strange line. It seems strange that someone could claim that a just God, would honor my making money from another man's sweat yeah, yeah. who's indentured, who's captive, who's not even free right. to decide to work for me. He's a slave. How could I then 
pray that God, uh, that a just God, and that's what Lincoln puts in the second inaugural. It seems strange to me yeah. that you would claim that. And so he does say that, but then he says, but let's not judge, lest we right. be judged. So where he did uh, make declarations indicating that there were some problems with both sides, uh, he did it in a way that, that kind of was grace, gracious towards them. In other words, he didn't slam them for having that view. More like a rhetorical. Yeah. You know, many, many years ago, I moved to uh, Seattle from San Francisco to uh, do graduate studies in communication here at this beloved institution. And one of the studies that we did was a study on the, the Gettysburg Address. And I wonder if you've ever noticed on the point of humility of the speaker that in the Gettysburg Address, Abraham Lincoln does not one time refer to himself or the word I Every bit of this speech was inclusive. We, we. And it was a very strong statement for his belief in the unity of the nation. And uh, he, he had a certain credibility in this speech because he didn't insert himself into the, into the speech. When you fast forward to today in political discourse, uh, and, and I'm going to try to be like Abraham Lincoln, be even-handed in this. Uh, certainly, uh, one would agree that, that our current president has no problem referencing himself liberally in his speeches. Uh, but it might interest you, for those of us that study the Gettysburg Address and kind of observe this and then study political speech-making afterwards, uh, President Obama actually has given two major speeches since he retired from office, and in both of them, he mentioned himself 50% uh, of the time. In other words, in a 60-minute speech, he mentioned himself every 30 seconds. So in a 60-minute speech, every, you know, every 30-second increment would be something about himself. And it, it just strikes me that we've moved into a whole different way of trying to understand what it means to unify people by inserting ourselves instead of we the people. Mm. Uh, it's one of the most brilliant things about this speech to me, that Abraham Lincoln showed that humility. Would you say that was real humility or was that a rhetorical effect? No, I think it was real. Uh because I, I, that's also in the second inaugural. He was expected and hoped that he would really scold the South and punish the South uh, because now the war is just about to be over and the South is, is uh, right against the, the wall. And, uh, and he doesn't. Uh, he, he ends it with binding up the, the, the wounds of those uh, who have uh, borne the, the, the war. And he doesn't say the Northerners or the Southerners, but it's all who've uh, faced that. And then their widows and their children and it, it is a kind of, uh, he wanted to heal the nation. And, and that's why he's, hmm. and, and if you put that and add it to the Gettysburg Address, where there also, uh, let us do this unfinished task uh, that have that new birth of freedom. A new birth, and that is a beautiful image of a new birth of freedom for us that everyone can be a part of. There's um, one other thing, then we'll take a break and get to the um, audience's questions. 
uh, friend of mine, Don, is here tonight, and he mentioned uh, when he registered for this that I had, uh, he had borrowed a copy of a book by Neil Postman called Technopoly for me. And I'm thinking of another Neil Postman book, Amusing Ourselves to Death. And in that book, Postman argues that we have moved from a word and idea, ideational uh, culture, to a, a visual culture. And, and you can't help but uh, imagine what a difference that speech that Lincoln had given, had there been television cameras there with all of these undug graves and, and bodies that were not yet buried. And, and you know, you, you think about uh, the, the way v visuals affect us. But on the other hand, Postman argues that what happens if you move too much towards a visual culture is that you lose ideas. You lose the ability to make a reasoned case. And that's why I find it so interesting that the, the standard expectation in those days was a speech of two and a half hours. It's like a preacher's dream. Uh, <laughs> not really. Uh, but, you know, in the great Lincoln-Douglas debates, one spoke for two and a half hours, then they broke for lunch, and then the other spoke for two and a half hours. And that was the expectation. And these were people that didn't have graduate degrees. These were everyday Americans that were wrestling with ideas. You know, in our own culture, we used to have what we call the middle-brow culture, in which intellectuals and people who were self-educated could meet in the middle. There was a perception that they should meet in the middle. Uh, and it's one of the great tragedies to me and challenges of um, being the kind of society Lincoln is describing uh, when you look at the way discourse has deteriorated today. Hmm. The inability to make rational arguments and reason together. Because in, in the second inaugural, he's doing an awful... Now, we had to, you know, he, again, spoke slowly. And uh, we were here in this setting with just a, an hour to do all this. We, we couldn't... We had to kind of give a, uh, a whirlwind tour. But uh, he is thinking with his audience. Uh, he is thinking with them. And he's going through uh, ideas and truths, and actually uh, re reflecting on, on on religious faith that they have. And uh, you know, it's like uh, uh, Ronald White makes an interesting comment. He says Lincoln uh, is present to us in in his own agonizing struggle for justice and reconciliation. He encourages us to ask difficult questions. And that's what he does in the second inaugural address. Mm -hmm. it's, it's loaded with difficult questions. He said, I just, he said, it seems strange to me that you could ask a just God to give you what you want and, and uh, what you want for, for your cause. I mean, it's like some people say, well, I don't like that politician, but then uh, he has the power to give me what I want. But Lincoln is not, is not settling for that. He wants to make a case that is just, and so that his justice is the thing that I'm caring about. So he says, Lincoln offers little comfort for those who in every crisis or war want to chant, God is on our side. The separation of church and state in the United States has never meant the separation of religion and politics. It's never meant that. Uh, Abraham Lincoln, George Washington, they all uh, make use of 
religious truth, uh, but it's not. It's still separation of church and state. Well, very interesting, and we're going to get back with our audience's questions coming up right after this. You're listening to Killing's Views with Earl Palmer. Right now. This is Dick Staub with uh, Reverend Earl Palmer tonight, having a very interesting conversation, which always gets even more interesting when we go out into the audience and find out what their questions and comments might be about tonight's subject. So we're going to start with Bill tonight. And Bill, if you can uh, tell us what your question is. Well, Earl, uh, we call it a civil war but it was really a war between the states. Why do we call it the civil? Yeah. It, he says, why call it civil war? And it's funny, isn't it, that in Edward Everett's speech, he always refers to them as the rebellion. The rebellion. He calls it a rebellion war. And it, it, throughout his speech, which I thought was quite interesting, he doesn't use civil war, but... Uh, Abraham Lincoln does use the, the, the phrase civil war in the second inaugural address. And uh, it, it means it was within, within one civilization, I guess. And you know, in a way that does say that uh, he is saying that we're not, uh, we, we come from the same stock in a way. We, we have uh, the, the same, uh, like we, we read the same Bible. And that's what's baffling to him. We read the same Bible. We, uh, we claim and, and pray for God's help to the same God. And, uh, and so it, it's not that there's an interreligious uh, rivalry. He, he discounts that. It's, it's a, it is a, a battle uh, between, uh, between members of the family. And I think that's probably the idea of civil. It's within the family, but it is a, it is a deadly war in which 630,000 uh, warriors die. Daniel, what's your question? My question would be, what would the Southern response be, you think, to Lincoln's second inaugural address? Or better put, um, how would Robert E. Lee reply to Lincoln if they were in the same room together? What would, uh, what would the Southerners, what was their response? And what about Robert E. Lee's response? A response to the second inaugural. Had the they been in, yeah, had they been in the same room, how would the South and Robert Lee in particular respond to that speech? You know, uh, I don't really know. Uh, I know that, uh, that uh, as you know, the great vision that Lincoln had was Reconstruction. That it would be Reconstruction, and we would, and as you know, it was only a very mixed success of, uh, of fair Reconstruction after the war, and, uh, but uh, once again, you know, uh, uh, people of goodwill did begin to rise uh, in all sides. We have a lot of uh, people that, that took advantage of, uh, of their, uh, you know, of their alliances, and then they became almost conspiratorial alliances for evil, but then a, a, a lot of other people didn't. And, uh, and that's also true, in the, like with the churches. Churches all divided, northern and southern, 
And then gradually they all begin to, to, to come back together. So thank God you don't have to stay enemies. Uh, but it is true. It was uh, uh, the, Lincoln tried to set a course uh, in that final paragraph of the of second and The second paragraph faces up to judgment and says we are all under judgment in this. And, and, and that's why so much blood has been lost. And, but the third, he claims hope and claims the power of love and the power of love to heal. And, and we thank God for that, that he, that he set that in motion. Okay, what's your question? Earl, would you please comment on the last phrase of the second inaugural where Lincoln ended with among ourselves and with all nations. In such a time, he mentioned all nations. Yeah, all nations, yeah. Uh, this, uh, this wisdom to see that we are not in this alone and what happens here uh, needs to be... Uh, it, it needs to make us, when we have healing here, it should make us better able to relate to people who are uh, across the seas or in different cultures. And, and of course, you know, it's interesting. England was our arch enemy in the Revolutionary War. But when it comes to slavery, England was our friend for righteousness sake. And we owe a great debt to John Newton and to uh, Wilberforce and to 19, 1803, where England, way ahead of us, uh, declared slavery an abomination. It's an abominable sin, and it's a sin against God and humanity. And that was done by England, way ahead of us. And so here, the, the, the English who we were so frightened of, you know, in, in the uh, War of Independence and also in the War of 1812, we were frightened of the English, and yet here, it was those uh, brave people that, that played that role of uh, wetting our appetite for the, the freeing of the slaves. The whole emancipation movement uh, had strong English theological roots. And Paul, what's your question? The Secretary of State Seward oftentimes would review uh, Lincoln's uh, speeches. Do you know if he actually participated in review of the Gettysburg Address? Oh, you mean in writing the Gettysburg? You would give input. Uh, you know, I don't know because probably not. Lincoln. Uh, he, 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 the question is wondering if uh, if Lincoln's cabinet members and and certainly Secretary of State members and would they have played a part in uh, uh, helping him write? Um, Well, you know, isn't it, isn't it interesting that Ronald White makes such a big point of how Lincoln was really interested in what uh, Douglas felt and uh, sought him out and said, it means so much to me what you think of what I said. And that was after the second inaugural. And he, uh, so he was a listener to other people. In fact, uh, you know, the, the great book, uh, Team of Rivals, uh, which tells about the fact that Lincoln ha was able to surround himself with people that were uh, were politically opposed to him, and yet he saw their greatness and was able to to uh, uh, 
treat them with so much respect that they were willing to be uh, in his cabinet and were willing to be, uh, you know, his uh, his uh, friend and and uh, comrades in in the in the American experiment. And we just owe a debt to uh, Lincoln for that. Connor, what's your question? So. I find it really hard to find genuinely thoughtful people to spend time with. So how can we encourage or experience um, a word and idea culture in a culture like this with so many distractions, visual or otherwise? Now, he, ca he finds it difficult to find what? Thoughtful, reasonable conversation and, and dialogue. With people, yeah. We, yeah, well, <laughs> well, you know. Uh, generally, some aardvarks, but generally uh, yeah. people. You know. Start it and do it. Uh, that's what uh, I owe a debt to Dick, uh, Dick Staub because that's sort of the vision of, of Kindling Muse is to have uh, respectful conversation with people from different points of view and different places on the journey. And I think it's very important for our country right now to be able to have uh, the kind of dialogue that, uh, where you can listen and, but also not be afraid of actually going with great ideas and working with great ideas. And that's what Lincoln did that is so remarkable in the second inaugural. He is actually with a great crowd of people. He isn't just doing, uh, you know, tabloid thinking, isn't just doing slogans. Uh, he's got, he, he has got uh, themes that he's trying to work with. And then when he comes to the, his prayer for, for hope, and then when it comes to his, uh, uh, his uh, claim of grace and the power of grace in in our culture right now, he does it thoughtfully. And I think it's that thoughtful uh, ingredient. You see it in the very short 272 words at, at Gettysburg. It, there is a thoughtfulness in it. And just the fact that he doesn't make it an I, I, I speech, he makes it a we, we, we speech. That, that itself is a kind of a thoughtful... Uh, a man who's able to work with people that, that are uh, different than he is and to try to uh, figure out what... And then the fact that he's using... Uh, there's a lot of Christian themes in the second inaugural, but it's interesting that he searches Christian themes, even quoting our Lord, but he does it in, in a way that is... Uh, that a person from other religious traditions could join in with. And, and that is what a great political leader, it seems to be, in a country that is multifaceted and has many cultures. You need to find great uh, universal truths that you can claim. And I, that's why I, I use Lewis as an example, that he did that in, his, in the opening of Amir Christianity. He does it in a very marvelous way uh, by saying there are great universal truths we need to now see that everybody uh, claims. We claim those truths to protect our own dignity and from being disrespected and from being harmed. And now we need to claim it for others as well. And I just think that Lincoln modeled that for us. Connor, I want to uh, affirm what you're saying. And when we started uh, <clears throat> the Kindlings uh, in 1999, the vision was to rekindle the intellectual, spiritual, creative legacy of Christians and culture. In other words, people who are thoughtful, people who are creative, 
uh, and people who understand a deeper spiritual uh, journey than the superficial uh, Christianity and religion that we see around us so often. And the uh, Kindling's Muse shows were actually uh, started uh, to host intelligent, imaginative, hospitable explorations of ideas that matter in contemporary life. It, it didn't have hospitable in there until I talked to the church historian Martin Marty at University of Chicago, and he had become a friend of mine when we lived in Chicago. And Marty said, every great religious tradition believes in hospitality. And he said, we need to reestablish a hospitable conversation with people in our own faith and with other faiths. And so uh, we've been at that for a while now, and we're getting old and uh, are ready to pass the torch to many others. And so please feel free to take it up. <laughs> uh, one other question. Uh, Doris wanted us, and this might be an interesting one to close with, I wanted to hear your comments on kind of the caustic kind of politics that we have today and how they were like and unlike the politics in Abraham Lincoln's day, because it certainly was pretty contentious back then, too. Yeah. Well, uh, he does uh, bluntly state in the second inaugural that there were conspiratorial, uh, uh, you might say, uh, uh, factions that were trying to undermine what we were what we were even doing to try to hold the union together, and even with compromises and everything. But they were determined to to uh, uh, simply go in a certain way, and and we therefore he doesn't say we sought war; they brought the war, and but we agreed to war to so that this republic would not perish so that the union would not perish we we agreed and and then we got in the war too and so you might say he is he himself uh, is recognizing that you don't always have mm -hmm. hospitable uh, a atmospheres yeah. and you, and because sometimes the uh, the, the fierceness of ideas yeah. can become so uh, so uh, threatening, uh, but you know, uh, when when you uh, when you claim a higher ground, I think it it does uh, it, it does help uh, to to clarify thinking. Yeah. Uh, if you can claim a higher ground rather than just go into the fierce and piercing. Yeah fierce ground where ideas are so angry and so and sometimes filled with vengeance yeah. uh, find uh, the higher ground and that's really what so impressed me in second inaugural he is he is wondering how we can uh, claim a justice that is uh, that is there that we claim uh, f that can be uh, uh, a justice for all, yeah. a, a fairness for all, and then claim that, and then uh, uh, and then seek to work toward it. And, and there's where conversation, and yeah. it, and even in politics, conversation can become uh, hospitable, even though we are differing. Right. It does require a commitment to building bridges instead of walls, and uh, and Lincoln was a great example of that. And I think in in him setting that example, it 
created an opportunity for the whole nation to try to begin having those difficult conversations. That's a great question. Well, that's going to do it for tonight's show. I really want to thank Earl Palmer for a great evening. I want to end with this one thought. It was considered that the duty of a funeral uh, meditation would be to make the place of the dead a school for the living. And so the words that Lincoln concluded with are, here we highly resolve that these dead shall not have died in vain, that this nation under God shall have a new birth of freedom, that government of the people, by the people, for the people shall not perish from the earth. That's one of the messages of Gettysburg. Well, thank you so much for being with us tonight. Thank you, Earl Palmer, and we'll look forward to seeing you next week.